means open up one last time to the first verse of Romans chapter 8. As you're turning there, let me begin with a question tonight. And I would suggest that this is not a small question. It's a vital question. The question is this. What is our main problem? When we look at the world around us and when we look at our own lives, what would we say is our main or primary problem? This is very important because if you give a wrong diagnosis, you will come up with a wrong prescription. When you go to the doctor and you know that you're sick, it is very important that the doctor give you a right diagnosis. Because if the doctor diagnoses you wrongly, he or she may give you a wrong prescription. He or she may prescribe a medicine or a procedure that will ultimately do you harm. It takes the right diagnosis to lead to the right prescription. We live in a culture that screams at us that our primary problem is our circumstances. That is, that our primary problem as individuals and as a human race is outside of us. Your problem is that you are a victim of your environment. We see this all the time. Why is there as much crime as there is in our city? Well, it's economics. There are people living in poverty. There are people who can't have jobs and therefore they fall into crime. And we even use that kind of language. They fall into crime. Why do we regularly hear of people committing random acts of violence, going into schools and movie theaters and shooting people? And the answer is sometimes given, well, it's the television, it's movies, it's video games. They're too violent. We have a culture of violence, and this causes people to act violently. We ask, why is there so much sexual immorality in our world? And we hear, well, there is no sexual immorality. Only old-fashioned oppressive ideas, old-fashioned oppressive rules about sexuality that we need to get rid of. And on on and on we could go. Every problem we could mention, we would find that our culture gives us an external diagnosis. It's our circumstances. And the way to help people is to change their circumstances. We need to get them out of poverty. We need to regulate the production of violent media. We need to get rid of old ideas about sexuality. Education is central. If we can just get people educated, we will find that it leads to a peaceful and moral world. And that's the way our society thinks. And and by the way, some of those things are certainly good. We ought to be all for helping people out of poverty. We ought to be all for education when it's done rightly. But in the end, all that has been diagnosed there are the symptoms. Our world never seems to get 
to the deeper problem. Our society fails to get to the root of the issue, the underlying cause of these things. And sadly, too many churches have followed the world down this path. Indeed, I would say that this is exactly what we have seen in the last 50 to 100 years among the mainline Protestant churches. I'm thinking here about the PCUSA, the Episcopal Church, uh, even now the United Methodists. And these are churches that, uh, not speaking about any particular local church, there are always some who are still very much seeking to follow Scripture, but these denominations as a whole began to lose the gospel decades ago. And they replaced the gospel with a a new view of man that says man is basically good. And these churches jumped on this bandwagon of saying the problem with people is their circumstances. And these churches changed their ministries so that it became less and less about preaching the gospel and more and more about social Ministry, getting people out of poverty, even encouraging political change, promoting mercy ministries. Now, I am not against mercy ministries. I am not against seeking to help people. Some of these things are not bad. But quite frankly, there is a reason why the mainline denominations are seeing many of their churches close their doors. Evangelical churches in the United States are still growing, but mainline churches are losing members at an incredibly fast rate. The PCUSA lost 100,000 members last year. The United Methodist Church lost 70,000 members last year. Why? Well, I would suggest it's because the world doesn't need churches that are already doing what the world is already doing. That is, if the church is giving inspirational talks, working to end hunger, fighting for political policies, the world doesn't need the church for that. There are government agencies, there are political parties, there are community organizations that already do these things, many times doing them better than local churches can. If you want an inspirational talk, daytime television, there it is. When the church follows the world's diagnosis and joins in the world's prescriptions, we shouldn't be surprised when the world decides it doesn't need the church anymore. But the Bible gets us to the root of our problem. And it's not our circumstances. Our circumstances are the result of our main problem, not the cause of our main problem. Our main problem is not something outside of us. The Bible's diagnosis is that our problem is ourselves. Namely, that we are sinners and therefore we sin. The Bible's diagnosis is that we, by nature, are twisted. Our hearts and our minds are darkened by sin. And we need to be clear that the greatest danger a person faces is not the danger of poverty or the danger of an inadequate education or the danger even of human violence. The Bible says there is a greater danger that confronts mankind. 
namely the danger of the wrath of God because of our sin. The Bible says that we are guilty, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that it is appointed for man once to die, and then comes the judgment. Our God is a consuming fire. The Bible says here is man's problem. We are guilty before a holy God. And your political party can do nothing about that. And your government agency cannot touch that problem. The top schools and the top universities in our nation have no solution for us. In fact, the top universities in our land are blinded to even see the problem. There is only one institution that God ever created to bring to man the remedy for this problem, and it is the church. The church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. Why? Because the church has the gospel. The church proclaims the gospel. The church preserves the gospel. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, more important than this. What the world needs most of all is the preaching of the gospel. Which is why one of the most significant things we can do in our lives is to support the proclamation of the gospel with our prayers, with our offerings, by bringing it to others. What the world needs most is the gospel. But we ought not ever to think for a moment that it is only unbelievers who need the gospel. We as Christians still need the gospel too. And here in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, Paul is reminding Christians in a summary form of the gospel that he laid out in Romans 3, 4, and 5. He is writing to fellow believers. He is caring for Christians. We know from Romans chapter 1 that Paul loves these people. He wants to be used by God for their benefit. He wants to serve their souls. And what does he do? He reminds them again and again and again of the gospel. Why? Might we think, well, Paul, they've already believed. We can move beyond that now. Of all the things that Paul could be sharing with this church in Rome, he keeps harping on the gospel. Why? Why is this? Well, the answer is found in the context of our verse, Romans 8.1. Let me remind you that we are unpacking Romans 8.1 in four parts, and this is the last of those four parts. We already studied the heart of the verse, the two words, no condemnation. We asked, what is this condemnation we've been saved from? And we saw the answer. We then looked at the words, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we unpacked what it meant to be in Christ Jesus and why this implies that there is no other way of salvation except through Christ Jesus. This morning we looked at the word now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we said that now clearly refers to some event, some event in our lifetime that took us from 
condemnation to no condemnation. And we said, what is it? And we got to the bottom of it. It was that God sent His Holy Spirit into our lives, caused us to be born again, to believe and to be saved. And so we end our study of this verse tonight by looking at the word, therefore. What do you hear when you hear the word, therefore? Doesn't it tell you that Paul is connecting what he has been saying before with what he is saying now? The word therefore is a word of relationship. Therefore, in light of what I've been saying, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And church, if we study the context and see what's happening in Paul's mind as he reasons with us, we will find that there is a very great and wonderful reason why he is yet again reminding these Roman Christians of the gospel. And it's the same reason why you and I need to be reminded of the gospel every day afresh. And so rather than just having us read verse 1, the way we have most of these sermons, I want to ask you to go back to Romans 7 and verse 13. We're going to begin reading there, and we're going to make our way to Romans 8.1 and see the context in which Paul brings about this verse. Romans 7, beginning in verse 13. It's talking about the law. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, what do we have here? In the verses we have just read in Romans 7, we have the reality that life as a Christian in this world is life spent in battle. 
Life as a Christian in this world is a life of constant struggle. And we can't let anyone ever tell us other than this. Don't ever let anyone win you to Jesus with talk of the Christian life being butterflies and rainbows. The struggles that all people experience as they live life in this world are the experience of Christians as well. But on top of that, Christians have an added struggle. One that can be intense. One that can be heart-wrenching. You see, the rest of the world, with all of the difficulties that they face in this life, they at least walk hand in hand with sin. They give themselves freely to sin. They are happy to go along with the ideas and the behaviors that are ungodly, but not the Christian. The Christian lives as a new soul in an old body. And our soul being made new by the Spirit wants to do what is right, but there is still something in this body of ours. It's connected to our body, but it's more than our body. It's our flesh. It's the, it's the old nature. And it wants us to do evil. And we still fight these things. We fight impatience and we fight ungodly anger and we fight self-centeredness and worldliness. And we see that Paul, Paul knew this struggle. He does what he doesn't want to do. He doesn't do what he wants to do. His his flesh, it is not a weak enemy. It is a mighty enemy. We know that Christ has won the war. We know that in the end, Christians will overcome their flesh. But the daily battles still rage on. And there are wins and there are losses. And there are scars that remain from those. Paul cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? I wonder, have you ever been there, believer? Have you ever been in that moment? So in the trenches with sin. So weary, so exhausted from fighting. That all you can say is, Lord, when will this battle be over? Oh, Lord, come quickly. That's really what Paul's saying there. This is the Romans 7 reality of the Christian life. And I dare say that if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you've experienced this. You've tasted this. You know something about this. But Paul said a great deal in this letter to the Romans before he ever got to Romans 7. And what Paul said, especially in chapters 3, 4, and 5, was that those who believe on our Lord Jesus Christ have peace with God. God's wrath has been fully propitiated by Christ. And we are made right with God by faith alone, not by works. In all of chapters 3, 4, and 5, he is now summing up. In verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why does he now, why at this point, why at this moment, after describing the battle and the struggle of the Christian life in chapter 7, why does he go from there to, oh, but let me remind you what I already said. Let me remind you. I think the answer is obvious of why he reminds them of the gospel yet again. It's because this is the key to how Paul can live as a joyful 
thankful, overflowing servant of God. You see, Paul doesn't want us to get the wrong idea from what he has just said in Romans 7. Yes, the Christian life is a struggle. Yes, the Christian life can be difficult. But that's just one part of it. That's not the whole story. It's not even the main part of the story. When we read the book of Acts, or we read Paul's letters in general, how does he come across to us? Is it not true that Paul appears to be an apostle who was marked by great joy and gratitude and peace? Over and over and over again in his letters, he, he tells us that he is grateful to God, that he is rejoicing, that he rejoices over this, he rejoices over that. He tells us, he tells the Philippians, rejoice in all things. Again, I say rejoice. He, he is constantly speaking to the churches about the warm gratitude he feels towards God and his heart for them. He begins almost every letter, I thank my God for this, I thank my God for that. In fact, when we look at the boldness of Paul, and we see him laying his life down in city after city, preaching before the Jews in the synagogues and the Gentiles in the streets and preaching before the common people, preaching before the rulers of his day. The overall impression of this man that we get is that he was a very secure and stable man. He was confident. He was content. He tells us many times that he rejoiced even in his sufferings. In Philippians 4, he says, I've learned to be content in every circumstance. And so we remember all that. And then we read the end of Romans 7. And we say, how can the Paul of Romans 7 be the Paul of Philippians 4? How can he be this man living every day in the midst of this great battle, living every day in this struggle with his own flesh, wretched man that he is, and yet be so happy and so content at the same time, overflowing in love to God and to others? Friends, this is the purpose of Romans 8.1. This is where he finds his joy. Yes, there are moments in Paul's life when he thinks about the battle and he, he grieves over his sin and he longs for Christ to come back, right? Oh, to depart and to be with Christ is far better. There are moments like that, but as soon as he has those moments, you know what he does? He preaches the gospel to himself. Yes, I am a wretched man in this struggle with sin, but I am a Christian. I am a justified man. I am a child of God. I am a saved sinner. I am a blood-bought believer. I am saved. Paul is assuming that the Christians in Rome know exactly the kind of battle he's been describing. And so it's for their encouragement, as well as for his, that he immediately goes from his description of the struggle to the gospel in which they stand. This is why Paul's struggle with sin does not paralyze him. It does not prevent him from living radically the Christian life. Paul's justification is the strength of his sanctification. 
even in the midst of the toughest battles with greed or covetousness or lust or self-centeredness, Paul can say to himself, Self, I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me. Flesh, do all you want. You will not prevail. For I will be found guiltless on the last day. There is no condemnation for me. Church, this is the great security which promotes radical, loving, sacrificial obedience to Jesus. I am okay. I am okay. Not because of anything in me, but I am okay because my Savior has done everything necessary to make me okay. And that right now I might be in the midst of a difficult battle. Indeed, right now I am in the midst of this difficult life on earth with all its battles. But I know how it's going to end. And I know that I am dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And I know that I will be granted entrance into heaven, into the very presence of God himself. And so even as I fight, I can say, I'm okay. I'm all right. Indeed, I'm better than all right. I am blessed. I am blessed beyond imagination. Romans 8.1 is gloriously liberating. We can never make peace with sin, but we can have peace even as we fight because Christ has secured our eternal peace with God. And so you see the answer to the question with which we began. Why is Paul reminding these Christians yet again of the gospel? It is because it is the gospel that gives them security and peace to keep living joyfully for the glory of God even in the midst of the battle. What did Jesus say? Did he say, my yoke is difficult and my burden is heavy? It's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that all who are weary and heavy laden should come to him take his yoke upon themselves. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you ever wondered how that might be? (laughs) Remember, Jesus' yoke is more than the yoke that the Jewish people had in his day because they were under the yoke of of Moses and, and their yoke was thou shalt not kill. Jesus came along and said, here's my yoke, you shall not even hate somebody. They were under the yoke of don't commit adultery. And Jesus says, here's my yoke, don't even lust. In other words, the the yoke that Jesus brought seemed to be even heavier than what we had before. Jesus comes and he doesn't just say, live in accordance with the Mosaic law so that you can be blameless. So that two or three or more witnesses won't be able to bring you guilty before a court. That was not the yoke he brought. The yoke he brought was this, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we think, Jesus, that's not a lighter yoke. You're making things worse. You're making things heavier. How can you call this light? Well, the yoke is easier and the burden is lighter because Christ has already paid for our sins and declared us righteous in the sight of God. In other words, we're no longer keeping the law to earn God's favor. We already have God's favor. We get the joy 
of striving to keep God's law out of love and out of gratitude, out of a sense of worship. Heaven, hell, no longer at stake. Do you see how that makes the yoke lighter? We keep the law now as saved people who are secure and okay. Because we trust the Lord Jesus Christ, because He is our holiness, our righteousness, our blamelessness before God, Therefore, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And this is why following Jesus can be described in terms that are peaceful and pastoral. Psalm 23 is absolutely true. Yes, there's a fight. Yes, there's a struggle. Yes, there's a battle. And yet the Christian life can still be described as he leads us beside still waters. He leads us into green pastures. It's this picture of peace. How? Is Christ going to take us out of the battle? No, not yet. But even in the midst of the battle, there's still waters and there's green pastures because we are gods through Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, listen to me. I do not know what sins you are dealing with. And I do not know the particulars of your battle. Maybe for you it's the battle of self-control against stupid spending or foolish eating. Maybe it is the battle against lust or the allure of ungodly movies or video games. Maybe it's your proneness to be overly critical of others, to look down on others. Whatever the sins are that you're struggling with, you must never make peace with them. You must never make peace with your sin. To make peace with your sin is to be at enmity with God. You will prove yourself not to be a saved person if you make peace with your sin. But even as you fight, even as you punch and you kick and you scratch and you claw to kill the sin in your life, don't let the battle for holiness paralyze you. Do not let this keep you from the joy and the peace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Satan wants the people of God to be so demoralized by their personal battles that they're of no earthly good to God. Satan would love that. He would love for you to be so focused on your struggle against this sin or that sin that you remain depressed and discouraged. You can't even see beyond yourself to see the needs of others, much less go out there and meet them. That wasn't Paul, right? He was not paralyzed, even as the wretched man of Romans 7. Why? Why was he laying his life down in city after city for others, rejoicing as they stoned him? Because of Romans 8.1. I know who I am. I am a Christian. No condemnation for me. It's all going to be okay for me in the end. And this is what it ought to be for us as well. It's in our joy that we find the strength to serve our Christ well. Don't let the fight keep you from the joy of who you are. Even if you lose the battle a million times, whatever your besetting sins are, if they are beating you black and blue, don't stop repenting. Keep doing everything you can to battle but battle in the joy of no condemnation. 
Romans 8.1 should be the banner over your fight against sin. It is your strength. It is your joy. I'm going to take you down, sin. And guess what? Even if you win some battles, you have no hold on me. No condemnation is mine. My Jesus has made it so, and it will be so forever and forever. Church, do you understand why the gospel is good news? Is this not sweet to you? Is this not precious to your heart? I want to close this evening by mentioning two great results of no condemnation, two great implications of Romans 8.1. The first is this. Because of Romans 8.1, you can draw near to God without fear. You can draw near to God without fear. Is that not wonderful? That your God loves you. He is at peace with you. He loves communing with you through the word and through prayer. Because of Romans 8.1, you are adopted as his child. He is your father. Enmity has been replaced by great love. And therefore, you can come to God freely with all of your burdens. You can cast your every care upon God. You can pour out your heart to God about your battles. And you can plead with him for help and encouragement. In fact, is this not one of the chief reasons that Paul was such a man of joy and contentment? Isn't that what he told us? This is Paul, Philippians 4. What does he say? He says, do not be anxious about anything. Paul, have you not seen the battle? Do you not know this world we live in and the Satan we're fighting against and the power of our flesh? And you say, do not be anxious about anything? How? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. No condemnation is yours. God is yours. Draw near to God with your problems. Take everything to God. What will happen if we do that, Paul? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The greatest thing about no condemnation is not no condemnation. The greatest thing about no condemnation is that it gets us to God. And He is the greatest gift of all. That we have Him as our God. Dear friends, draw near to God in prayer. And then the second implication is this. Living in the joy of the gospel will increase your desire and ability to kill sin in your life. Living in the joy of the gospel will increase your desire and ability to kill sin in your life. In particular, I'm thinking here about the effect of knowing that God sent His Son Jesus to die for my sins. When I live in that truth, that God gave His Son for my sins, how can I entertain for a moment the idea of making peace with my sins. When I think about my Savior groaning on the tree, 
the agony of Christ's soul in those moments, how can I not do everything possible to keep from sinning? When I think about my Father and how every sin grieves the heart of my Father who has loved me, He loves me to this great extent, why would I do anything to cause His holy heart grief? Why would I dare rouse my Father's displeasure when He has been so good to me? I live in the ocean depths of His love and His mercy and His compassion thinking often about the cross and what God has done to save us from our sins will cause us to live more carefully, more soberly, more cautiously, but it will all be done in joy. It will all be done in a sense of overwhelming gratitude. Of course I'm going to fight sin because of what my God has done for me. Thinking about the love of God for us and sending His Son will make us a mature people, a holy people, a people that shine like spotlights in a world of darkness. And my prayer is that God would make it so. I'm going to close with the words of a hymn, the hymn we sang just a few moments ago. I know it was new to many of you. I just thought it was wonderful for tonight. I want you to hear the words again. It's how you preach to yourself. Stand up, my soul, shake off thy fears, and gird the gospel armor on. March to the gates of endless joy, where thy great captain Savior's gone. Hell and thy sins resist thy course, but hell and sin are vanquished foes. Thy Jesus nailed them to his cross and sung the triumph when he rose. So let my soul march boldly on and press forward to the heavenly gate. There peace and joy, eternal reign, and glittering robes for conquerors wait. Church, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, Romans 8.1 won't have this effect on us automatically. Indeed, it is very possible for us to leave this place and for our hearts to be hardened to what we've just heard. Rather than being overwhelmed by your love, rather than being encouraged by the gospel, rather than being strengthened to fight sin, Father, it is possible that some in this room could leave here having hearts that remain unmoved. Well, Father, may that not be so here. Don't let us get over the gospel. We need it. It's what makes us mature. It's what makes us holy. Father, give us the joy and the peace of living in the reality that we are your children. Children of God. Father, I pray that your spirit would take these truths that we've heard tonight and plant them deep inside of us. That it would shape the way we think about ourselves. That it would shape the way we live in this world. Make us a secure, stable,
stable, happy people through Christ Jesus and use us mightily for His glory. And all along the way, as we face our daily battles with sin, we do ask that you give us victory after victory. And when we fall down, don't let us be discouraged, but let us rejoice in the gospel in you and get up and keep marching forward. Oh, Father, would you make this happen? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.